Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. So we are starting a, uh, a new series today uh, over the book of 1 John, which is actually kind of a letter to the early church that reads kind of like a sermon sent as a letter to a church. Um, calling them back to the basics of Christian life. If you're noticing a trend, we went vital Christianity and then a book that's back to the basics, not totally on accident, Uh, back to the core of what Christian life is, back to uh, things that some people label legalistic, but they're never meant to be, back to true doctrine, obedient living, and fervent devotion. And this is a beautiful call for a beautiful reason. And we're going to see part of the reason of, uh, we're always asking, okay, why should I care? The the writer is going to tell you why at, at the end of the text that we're dealing with in this very first sermon. Uh, to, to also give you a, a sense of where we are going uh, in the next couple months, uh, this series should, whether willing, hopefully we're behind all of that ice stuff. I, I, I hate that. I love snow when I was a kid. Then when you're older and you have to deal with it, and then it's not, not fun. Uh, this should be an 11-part series that ends on Mother's Day. That's the hope. Uh, during this series, we are going to be uh, pairing together again with Pastor DeMarcus and Convergence Church in March. Some of you asked if we were doing that. The answer is, yeah, yeah, we are. Um, and then about halfway through it, we're going to pause and we are going to celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday together. Uh, that's a Sunday that some of us have already started pointing our hearts to uh, through observing the season of, of Lent together, asking the Holy Spirit to renew and awaken us. The basics of this is, is several of us are experiencing or observing it by taking some things away from our flesh in order that our soul would be built up and that we could worship well. Uh, and then our soul would be revived in Jesus. So that, that is the hope. Needless to say, I'm a little excited about that. And my ask for uh, you as you enter into this with us is just to prayerfully expect God to move in that. What if we expected God to do things? That would be really fantastic for the season moving forward. Uh, before we start the letter of First John, I'll ground us in context, right? We are starting a book that's 11 weeks long, so we need to kind of understand what's happening and why this book is written. This book is uh, authored most likely by John the Beloved. There's a little bit of argument over which John wrote this. There's several Johns, no matter what. It was a John. That's not good wording. Um, a guy named John. Yep, not in the notes. Uh, and, and he is a disciple and a follower of Jesus. He was a firsthand apostle. Uh, and at this point, he, he's older in age, and he's overseeing a network of house churches, which are smaller churches, kind of like us. This is what he's overseeing. And uh, this book is written no later than 90 AD. Um, and, and that's important, not so that we can nerd out on the facts, but this shows us that this book was written that, uh, as a letter to a church not terribly long into the history of the church. It wasn't very long after Jesus' death and resurrection and the commissioning of the church, so very early in the history of the church, this letter was sent. They were not very old. The church was not very old at this time, but it was already experiencing a tension as a group of people emerged who are called the, the Gnostics, and they believed and they taught that special revelation or knowledge about faith was given to them. They believed that they had received it on their own, new insight into who Jesus, quote-unquote, really is, 
uh, who we really are in light of that and how we are to actually live with this new information that they have been given. So the author is writing to correct uh, and rebuke and come against this fast-moving heresy of this new information. That's why the book of 1 John doesn't read uh, like Romans, like a deep theological work, uh, is because it's not trying to open up some new area of theology or unmind some doctrine that we need help with. This book is aimed specifically at correcting false teaching, things that are not true, and remind us of what is true. So it's going to remind us of the basics, not by saying new things, but by re-saying old things so that we come back to the core and the foundation of our faith. The book, for this reason, is going to be uh, really full of reminders and accessible applications for you and me. Meaning, it's not going to be hard when we finish text to go, I know what I can or cannot do with that. And we'll have to choose what we'll do with that. It's going to be surrounding the topics of life, truth, and love. And the author is going to circle them over and over and over again so that we don't mistake what's happening. Now, if you are a person with an inner cynic like I am and wondering, okay, great, but why is this relevant to us? 2,000 years later, a a message written about heretics or false theology or false truth. Why is that short book of the Bible something that we need at this time? And I would say it's because we're going through the exact same thing as them. Follow me to connect this. We live in a day, remember Gnosticism is new information that people live by special information that people live by. We live in a day of culturally accepted Gnosticism. And I would push this even further. We live in a day of culturally mandated Gnosticism. Oh, you need your new information to live by. You need your new revelation to live by. Sure, people back then, they claimed to have quote-unquote special revelation. Why did they call it special revelation back then? Because it's not normal. It's not normal for someone to, aha, have this new information and tell everybody, you better live by this or else. It's, it's not normal for that. But today, culture tells us instead of you can have this special revelation, culture tells us we're all the special ones who all get new revelation because we're special. We have our own insight, our own wisdom, our own truth, our own story, our own way of framing up reality inside of us, and the goal is just to kind of get that out, and that's where you're going to be happy. Though the way it comes about is a little bit different, it's exactly the same thing. A fast-moving belief that what is true is not true universally anymore. And that truth can be adapted and altered and moved in order to fit what an individual wants, desires, or feels in the moment. The culturally held belief now is that truth is fluid and it comes from inside of you. This is just a modern-day version of Gnosticism. It's the same thing, just repackaged. New, special information. Now it's okay to live by. When you hear these things, I want to make sure it doesn't seem like I'm angry or throwing stones, because this isn't people out there. Remember, this is a, a letter written to a church body. The assumption is they're, they're saved or think they're saved. This isn't a note note posted in the Columbia Tribune or the New York paper. This is to the church. This issue of accepting new truth, it was all over the church back then, or the temptation was to let it be, and it's all over the church now. 
hear this, every time you say or hear someone say, well, Jesus to me is, faith to me is, God to me is, sin to me is or is not, salvation to me is, obedience to me is, and then fills that gap with something that they they believe to be true that is not in Scripture or contradicts Scripture that's a 2,000-year echo reverberating into our culture of Gnosticism. It's exactly what John was writing about. And friends, it's what many people in the church have accidentally fallen into. Other churches, and, and hear me, our church. How does accidental Gnosticism happen? Well, primarily, I think, through two different doors. The, the first way is through preference. We frame up slowly but surely, brick by brick, what we want to be true, wish to be true, or feel is true. And brick by brick, we raise up a gospel of self that eclipses over the gospel of God. The reason it's accidental is it's not most of the time at one point we go, no, it's my way. It's slow but sure build, and all of a sudden this new building is created. The other way that I would say is exploded right now in our culture, it's all over, and it's even more dangerous right now, is accidental Gnosticism gets fallen into when Christians allow another person to influence them, especially an external leader. When they allow someone to mold their their beliefs of what is true outside of going to the Bible for what is true. This happens when, when people blindly trust what a, what a person of, of influence says to them is gospel without doing the needed work to actually make sure it's in the Bible, or the Bible doesn't say actually, hey, don't do that. The second way, again, is really dangerous because I don't think a lot of people realize it when it's happening. Why? Most of the time, they're going to someone they trust. Why? Because they want to know how to handle a situation. And they're trusting that that person is going to give them a biblical gospel answer. And, and, and so they take it, and they submit their self to these words of knowledge that come across from this external source, trusting that that leader is correct and worthy of believing and not realizing that that was their own personal opinion. Essentially, these are the ways that it can take root and us think that we're still feeling fine. Again, that second one is dangerous because the person actually thinks they're seeking counsel. If you want to honestly gauge whether you are susceptible to accidental Gnosticism, I would say just ask, ask this question. Is your primary discipleship from a person you don't know? From a person you can't see? You don't know how they actually live their life. Is it from a screen that you get discipled or, or from a speaker? If that is your primary means from an online persona, an influencer, an author, an activist, a pastor who, who, who says that they're going to teach you, but you don't actually get to see how they're living out what they're teaching, if that's the case, be very, very careful because you are ripe to fall into accidental Gnosticism. Weigh the words of external leaders with an open Bible, prayer for heart, and a healthy suspicion. Now, full disclosure, uh, Friday, me and Allie sat down and watched a YouTube video of Matt Chandler, a pastor I don't hang out with every day, preaching. Open Bible and prayerfully, though. We have to make sure the words and the things that we're taking in line up with what the Word says, or else we could be in a whole lot of trouble. We hear that and think, man, you angry? 
Why are you so intense? Why are you so worried about that? I'd say I have to be. Because truth is everything. And living while holding true things that aren't true or, or holding as if ultimate things that God said aren't true will ultimately hurt you and it will hurt me. It'll lead us down a path of pain, loss, and bitterness. That's why one of the main jobs of an elder in a church is to defend the church from wolves, which are peddlers of false theology, false truths, if you will. Why? Because truth matters. And a heresy hurts people. As we jump into these opening verses, the prologue of 1 John, watch the author. He skips all pleasantries, right? It's a note written as a sermon. He's not like, hey guys, I remember that one time we had dinner and it was so good. You caught a huge fish and it was wonderful. I can't wait to come back. And none of that. He just like dives in. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. kind of build in these arguments. I, I think this is a text too that may be beneficial to like, hear it now and then read it a couple times again later. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, remember the why. And we are writing you these things so that our joy, it's not we anymore, it's our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever done something knowing that the result may end up being extremely frustrating to you, but you do it anyway? I have myself, and I've watched others do it. Uh, The classic one that I thought of is the asking Facebook for a reference blunder. I will tap into the wisdom of the internet and my true online friends. I've done it looking for references for a carpet guy, for a landscaper. If you know me, you know I hate mowing the lawn and so do my allergies. Uh, so, So I've needed a reference to get something done the right way for the right price So when this happens, I put out the question, does anybody out there have a good recommendation, a reference of someone that you know firsthand, a personal reference that you have experience with their work and trust to do X, Y, or Z by which I have a need of, right? Notice the clarity. Do you have a good recommendation, firsthand experience, like, they've done a good job for you, and you've seen it yourself, right? I, that, very intentional. And inevitably, every single time, some Yahoo will type out the name of a person that they've never met, seen, experienced, and they don't, even, they don't even know if the guy exists. It's the classic, yeah, my uncle's friend's neighbor's brother. They'd be great at it. And I go, 
Whenever this happens, my inner not nice comes out, and I think it's really good that the internet's between us right now because I want to shake you. Why? Because it's a blind tip. Now, follow me. Why is that scenario annoying? Why is that so frustrating when it happens to us? And if you're thinking, I don't know why it's frustrating, you're the Yahoo, actually, then. (laughs) The reason that's frustrating is because we place high, high value on firsthand experience when it comes to things that matter. Right? We value when a person has proof, merit, verification for the words that they give us. And if someone speaks out of ignorance or sheer obliviousness, we know that their words cannot and should not be trusted. This is what John's talking about. Remember, John is writing to confront these rogue uh, Gnostics who are bringing in new beliefs. Hey, guys, look what I learned. You should do this too. He's coming to confront these people who have new, special, different knowledge. John begins confronting this by laying out his proof, his verification, his credentials, if you will. He's setting the stage to say, what I am telling you, I am not ignorant about. I'm not speaking about something I don't know or something that I don't have firsthand experience with. I'm speaking into something that I'm qualified to speak on and speaking against people who are not qualified to speak into this new truth. But the subtle question is these Gnostics are bringing all this knowledge, and he's like, you got proof? Oh, no. Shh, then be quiet. I do. That's what he's doing. To know what John is speaking into, we need to know what the Gnostics are saying. Now, yes, there's this element of all of them are having like personal knowledge that they're living by, but there's some kind of repeatable tenets in what they're saying that he's speaking against, and we need to know those in order to understand why he says things like Jesus is the light, you'll, you'll find in here. The Gnostics were denying the deity of Jesus, which is to say that Jesus is not God. Jesus said himself he was and the only way to God. Now, we see this in our day, and they saw it in, uh, and there's probably when people kind of liked Jesus' teachings and his generosity, and they think he was probably like a cool guy to have dinner with, but don't necessarily think he's anything special or the only way to God. This is someone denying the deity of Jesus. Or it happens when a person wants the benefits of Jesus without the following of him part. I'll take Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as King. Is that cool? No, that's denying his deity. And when we do this, or when people do this, what they're doing is they're reframing with their own special knowledge who Jesus is. Mind you, they're doing it by denying what Jesus actually said about himself. They're recreating, erasing what Jesus said to go, no, this is better. This is actually who you are. The Gnostics were also denying eternal life. We'll frame this one up this week and and continuing to go, but uh, eternal life is more than just life after death. When the Bible talks of eternal life, they're talking about the, the meaning of life, the very point, the core of why we were created and what we long for inside. Eternal life is like the life that's supposed to be if sin hadn't wrecked stuff. That's eternal life. So when a person denies eternal life or changes what God declares eternal life is, this would be kind of akin to a clay pot turning to the potter and saying, I'm not a pot, I'm a chair. 
telling the master, the, the, the creator, the one who formed it with their own hands out of the vision in their own mind, that the, that the creator's actually not smart enough to know what he had made. This is creation vetoing the creator. I hear what you're saying, you're just wrong. Guys, the audacity of this is what we do. You realize this, right? It's what the world does too. The third major thing that the Gnostics were teaching is tied to the others, but they're teaching that salvation or redemption didn't come through Jesus. Instead, salvation comes through acknowledging and affirming what they literally called their own divine light. The light inside of your soul you just need to find it and, and live by it and, and let your soul, let your heart be your guide. And that's salvation. So salvation doesn't require Jesus, doesn't require repenting, doesn't require faith. It requires a rebirth that comes through yourself by unlocking and yielding to what's already inside of you. Can you see, friends, how strikingly similar what the Gnostics preach and what our culture preaches? the same thing. We see this in the self-actualization movement. The biggest hindrance that you have is that you're just not actualizing what's inside of you. We see this through a million self-help books. And hear the the understanding of this. Like, most all of the self-help books are centered on self. How do I fix my broken self? Well, just use yourself. Broken fixes broken? Yeah. We see this through a world that has declared also that personal new truth is king. And ultimate truth is absolute. It's dead and gone. John is going to face off with these three things. Jesus is God. There's one eternal life. And there's one way to get there. And he will not let those go. Hope is that we won't either. John goes through the text, says, that which was from the beginning, which is to say, remember, he's coming against false truth. That which is from the beginning is to say, that which isn't new. It's not some new idea. It's been here all along. That which isn't a fad, it isn't a craze, it isn't a new logic or a new idea, is the word of life. This is the author's way of saying that the gospel isn't new, you didn't just figure it out, it's been here all along, and the Gnostic's message is a new idea, but the real gospel has been here all along. The gospel, the truth that leads to life, John is even going to say, isn't just a tangible idea, It's a living being. And then we see John kind of flex on them in a non-prideful way, but to establish his credibility. He says, the word of life that hasn't just been here from the beginning because it's always existed, it put on flesh and we heard it. Now, when he says we here, he's talking about him and the other firsthand apostles or disciples. 
right? Because we, we live in and follow a faith handed down. So he's saying we, the people who have firsthand experience, we heard him. We have, have seen him with our own eyes. We looked upon him. We touched him with our own hands. Notice he's straining. We heard, we, we've seen, we've looked, we've touched. He's saying, you cannot poke holes in my credibility here. The word of life, the way to life, isn't just an idea. It's a person whom John has witnessed himself. Back in those times, truth claims were verified, not through popularity. When you think about our truth claims and how they're verified, it's not the scenario. Truth claims were not verified through popularity then, through cultural traction, uh, through, through cultural desire, through Instagram followers or platforms or, or blogs. Truth was verified through first-hand accounts, through physical witness. So the question when somebody says, I know about this, would automatically be, what did you see yourself? Oh, nothing? Don't talk then. The word of life was made manifest and he says, we have seen it. He's building like a, like a court case. He's almost doing the cross-examining himself going, I'm a good witness for this. John is talking about the incarnation here, though, about Jesus putting on flesh, about how Jesus, who is the truth, the word of life, the way of life, came down from glory, stepped into our creation to make a way for us to have life again. He says this truth, the word of life, and the way to life, we have seen it, and now we testify to it, which gives a a trustworthy statement that you can believe in, and what we have seen, and what we've heard, and we've looked at, and we touched, we now proclaim to you to in that you can find eternal life, which also isn't new. It was with the Father and has now been made manifest to us. When the Bible says made manifest, like part of what they're saying there is if it weren't made manifest, we'd be looking around in the dark and still would have no clue. John's understanding is you're not in the dark. You do have a clue. It's been made manifest. It put on flesh. We've seen it. We've heard it. Jesus came down so that you wouldn't be going, I wonder. He came down as truth. Now, the Greek words here uh, aren't always easy to follow when they're translated into English, so let's make sure that we're tracking with John's progression here. He says, the word of life, the truth, has been here since the very beginning, and the word of life was made manifest. It took on flesh in Jesus Christ, and John heard the word that took on flesh. He saw it, he looked on it, he touched it, and now John and the apostles are testifying, giving witness, and even more, they're proclaiming that the word of life has been made manifest so that we may have eternal life. This truth that I'm giving is so you will have eternal life. The implication underneath is the things that they're saying, they're not true, and they will not lead you to eternal life. John 17, 3. The, the question at hand has to still be, what exactly is eternal life? The gospel of John, not, not the letters. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. Words are important, right? Not this may be, possibly could be for some. And this is eternal life that you or that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let that sit. Because there's part of us who's like, and then? No, and then. 
This is eternal life that you know God in Jesus. And this no isn't a distant no. It's a, I, I know them. We're connected in relationship. It's this deep knowing. When we think of eternal life, we, we may think of heaven or bliss or a land of perfection or pie in the sky. And John is saying eternal life isn't a place. It isn't escaping a world that you have some problem with. Uh, eternal life isn't even just salvation. Eternal life is fellowship with the Godhead. That's everything. What does this mean? It means eternal life isn't a destination. It's a relationship. And the good news is you have access to that relationship now. How? Through the word of life. We have access to be in fellowship, in communion, in relationship with the triune God through the truth who put on flesh whose name was Jesus. That's why John goes on to say that he's proclaiming what he's seen. What the gospel is to that church so that they may have fellowship with him and fellowship with God and fellowship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Hear me, this is John's loving pastoral way to say the life that you were created for, the reason that you exist, comes about only through Jesus and only through his truth. In fact, he is the word of life, the truth. So he's saying, hey, don't fall for anything else. Don't line up with anything else. Don't believe in anything else to be your true gospel if this message is true. John's for sure also knocking down the words of the Gnostics here because the inference would would be, hey, Gnostics, this truth that you've heard, where did you hear it from? Inside my heart? Their culture would have laughed at that. They can give no viable witness to the claims that they're making. John's saying, hey, they're empty words. Be careful. Be careful because they will not lead you to eternal life, which is actually a relationship with truth that came down for you. The Gnostics and the spirit of the Gnostics say this, life is about you. That's the mantra. It's about you. Life is about what you hold to be true, about what you have inside, what you feel inside, what you want inside, about your inner light coming out and shining in all of its glory, about you accepting yourself and your knowledge and living that out. This means that their version of salvation isn't salvation at all. Sure, the, the people back then, they're, they're clothing these Gnostic things with, with religious words and faith words and different things like that. But the, the version of salvation that they're framing up is actually condemnation. It's doom. It's what Jesus came to save you from. Why? Because it doesn't lead you to fellowship with God. It keeps you out of it. Therefore, John's big takeaway, his big idea... What I hope we hear at the front side of Lent and we're reawakened to is that this life is for fellowship with God. This life is for it and you're for it. It's the reason that you exist and it's the reason that I exist.
It's what we are made for. It's what we desire. It's what we long for inside. Even if you can't identify it is, it is. And the only way to get that fellowship, to be reconciled in that type of relationship with God is through the truth, the truth that came down in Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other path. And there's no other truth. Now, I want to be a little careful in the framing up of this. Like, this is to the church, right? So he's not saying scream at all the Gnostics. He's saying you hold to what is true. We have to culturally make sure we're doing that too. Your job isn't to fight other people with false truths. Your job is to live in the truth. Tell a better story. Don't yell at everyone. Now we have two options here. Reject John's words in the text. Right, option one. Reject that Jesus is the truth and the way to life. Reject that he's the word of life. Believe that eternal life is whatever you actually want it to be or whatever you say it is. Or the other is to receive what John said. That Jesus is the truth and the way. And that fellowship with God actually is everything. That fellowship and relationship and meaningful connection to the Godhead is eternal life. The reason we are created, what we long for, the only spot that our hearts will find peace and the very reason that Jesus came down from heaven. If your heart rejects John's words, I just plead, I plead with you to ask why. Could you slow down humbly enough to, to just ask why is your truth or the truth that another person has got you to believe in? Why is that more powerful? Why does that get to be more true? And why does it get to be more authoritative than Christ? Wrestle with that appropriately. I can't tell you what to do with that. But understand, if you're living out a, a truth contrary to the Bible or that someone else has fed you, that's a platform of pride. And if you receive John's words and say, yes, I believe that to be true, Fellowship with God is everything. It's why Jesus came. We are, in fact, invited into the koinonia, that's fellowship here, which is a shared relationship between God and his redeemed people. Notice John says fellowship or eternal life isn't just you. It isn't even just you and God. It's us. It is you and God and his redeemed people. You're believing that fellowship and, and participation in this relationship is everything. Th then let's just ask a temperature gauge question. This is not a question of condemnation. This is a, a same way we do maintenance on the car. This is maintenance of the heart and soul. If you accept John's words to be true, fellowship is everything. How's your fellowship going right now? Sincerely. How's your tangible relationship with God right now? This is what the Bible calls communion. How's that going? Do you feel like you're a part of a fellowship with God today? 
Do you feel like there's tangible, felt, and real relational connection with you and him right now that's active in this season? Do you feel the Spirit of God leading you, guiding you, molding you? Do you feel the warmth of God's love through the Spirit? Do you feel the hope of God through your fellowship? And do you feel like there's an actual felt union between you and God right now? Preface this. This is not a question to induce shame. It's to bring us out. If your answer is like, no, today's for that. If you can't say that you feel that, would you say that your relationship with God is more distant and quiet right now? Like maybe the Holy Spirit has never led you, been close to you, or hasn't in a really, really long time. Like your faith has digressed into a couple routines and moral habits that you're just holding the line the best that you can. That there is no life, there is no vibrance, there is no fellowship. It's just distant and cold and quiet. If that's more of your reality, then just hear this beautiful truth that isn't meant to hurt you. That's not what God wants for you. He sent Jesus not just to pardon you, but so that you could have fellowship with him. And today is an invitation from God to be awakened and revived into that truth. A moment that the Holy Spirit may be just kind of drawing you back in, saying to you, hey, it's time to walk out of that valley and come and draw near and walk in fellowship and relationship again. It's what you're made for. It's what you want. It's what you need. And God isn't trying to smash you with a hammer. He's going, come on, let's go. It's an offering from a kind God. Look at John's closing verse for this section done full sermons over this verse, and we just don't really need to this time, because it says what it says. And we are writing these things so that our joy, our may be complete. Here's the reality that some of us may be walking in right now. Your joy is about gone. The ember of your faith is, is just barely there. It's lifeless, empty, and quiet. The message for John and for the church back then uh, and for us right now is that life done without fellowship is never going to be joyful. This section is one big reminder that if you don't hear anything else, don't miss fellowship with God because if you do, you'll miss the joy in God as well. Trying to work for God without being in connection with God will make you angry and tired. It's not even what God's asking for. Notice there's not a bunch of moral clauses at the beginning. It's an invitation in. Don't miss the beauty. God has made a way for sinners like me to be restored and brought into what theologians have called the dance, this familial, relational connection of knowing God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to be in this heavenly family and walk it out with your brothers and sisters in the faith. God didn't just send Jesus to buy you and throw you away. And Jesus didn't come to pardon you and keep you away. God moved and acted so that we may be in relationship, in vibrant relationship with him. My hope and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will use that truth to draw us and just reset things. That our hearts will come alive in that. If you hear nothing else, please hear as we close. Joy comes through fellowship. 
There's no other way to get it. We've been through about 12 months of a pandemic, and what have our hearts done? We've searched everywhere. Can I get joy here? 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 And some of the things we're searching for, they're not even sinful. We're just, we're grasping. And the word here is none of those things, your job, your country, your family, your money, your success, your politics, and definitely not yourself will ever satisfy the ache in your soul, but Jesus will, and he's knocking in there. It's an invitation. The question is, will you believe in in that? Will you walk in light of that? Or will you not? Will you continue to search for other things and zone out and pretend that that will make everything okay? We just speak into this, man. You guys can come back up. A lot of us for Lent are fighting against this, but if it feels like the gap relationally between you and God, the fellowship, uh, the fellowship between you and God just seems so distant that in your mind, the pushback right now is, I don't know if that kind of gap can be closed. Can I tell you, in prayer with the Spirit, it can be closed like that. The play is if you feel distant, if, if you feel like God is a long ways away and your heart is yearning for it, just in prayer as we worship, say, God, that's, that's me. I, I've been walking outside of the eternal light that you've, life that you've given me. Help close the gap. Let me be in fellowship. Holy Spirit, draw me in and fix my heart. That gap, though it seems miles wide, he'll fix it immediately, or he can. I pray that you would lean into that. We'll have communion available today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray and worship at some point that you would examine your heart and take. And hear these words, this remembrance of what Jesus has done. Jesus has done all of this to walk with you. And that's why he said, I sent my spirit to make sure that that could happen. As you take the bread and the cup, remember there's still a sacrifice, even if there's been distance between you and God. But hear the invitation as Jesus draws you in. I pray that you would hear that, that you would act, that you would prayerfully move through worship today however you need to. My hope for us is that we would have restored fellowship, that we would have awakening and renewal in our hearts and our relationship with